Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. Well, welcome to the Mental Healthy Podcast today. We're glad to have you with us. I've got a great guest here today, Dr. Gary Sibsey, and we're going to be talking about tailor-made depression treatments. Um, Gary Sibsey is a really neat guest to have on the program today. He's done a lot of things. He's currently the director of the PsyD and Clinical Psychology program here at Liberty University, and he's a licensed clinical psychologist himself with a PhD in clinical psychology. He's also been in private practice for a number of years. He has five books. Book titles are Why You Do the Things You Do, Attachments, Counseling Skills, Loving Your Child Too Much, and Redeeming Attachment as well as he has a 12-hour video training and workbook on effective, excuse me, evidence-based treatments for depression, which is done with the American Association of Christian Counselors. Welcome to the program, Gary. We're glad to have you. Thank you, Dr. Knapp. It's quite a pleasure. Looking forward to talking about this. You've obviously done a lot of work in regards to depression treatment. Yeah, you know, I think it was a couple years ago that somebody asked me, how many hours of your time have you spent treating people who are depressed? not just talking to people who are depressed, but treating people who are depressed. And the latest calculation I have is that it's over 25,000 hours. Oh, my goodness. So you're pretty familiar with this topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, besides, like, you know, doing sort of research and reading and stuff like that and some uh, writing and stuff on depression, you know, just spending time in clinical practice in the chair. You know, talking to people who are depressed and working with depression has been extremely informative and useful. Good, because our listeners to the program are just a broad array of people in the mental health field, either professionals or students. And so all of your experience over the years is going to come in handy here. Now, um, we're talking about depression today and depression treatment. And I know a lot of times when we talk about depression, some people tend to think, you know, well, you just give them a pill. Or other people say, no, no, you don't do pills. And there's some people who are anti-psychiatry. But what are some of your thoughts about that in regards to, you know, what are some good medications you could use for depression treatment versus therapy or some combination? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, there's been a lot of research on medications and their effectiveness. And what's important to realize is medication is, in fact, effective. There's really not a huge debate about that. But the question is, what do we mean by effective? And typically that means that when you have these scientific studies investigating it, they are comparing an antidepressant medication with placebo. And at the end of the treatment, if there's a statistical difference between medication and placebo, then it's declared as an effective treatment. But what a lot of people don't recognize is that in most of these studies, the vast majority of people in the study didn't get to remission. So they weren't well, they were just better than those in the placebo. So the way that they tried to really investigate this, the largest antidepressant study ever done was called the STAR-D study, which is the sequenced treatment alternatives to relieve depression. So the goal in this study was to see over the course of one year, what percentage of people they could actually get to remission. And so they went through these four phases where you would enter a phase, like in phase one, and they would give you an antidepressant, and they would also push the dose to its highest tolerable level, right? So it wasn't a fixed dose study like a lot of them. And after 12 weeks, if you were in remission, then you came out of the study, stayed on your medication, 
if you weren't in remission, then you would go to the next phase where they would give you an upgrade in the medication or some kind of medication augmentation strategy. And then again, for 12 weeks, and at the end of that, if you were in remission, same thing, you came out, and if you weren't, you went to the next phase. But here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of people don't realize this, that first of all, 40% of the people in this huge, thousands of people in this study, only 60% of the people completed the study. The other 40% dropped out for a lot of different reasons. But of the 60% of people who completed in that first phase, right? This is like you going to your family doctor and him giving you medication and she's giving you medication. Only 33% of people achieved remission. So then at the second phase, it went up to 57%. So in the third phase, you went up from 57% to 63, and then in the fourth phase to 67%. Now, that sounds pretty good, but you're saying that even when people get the most we can offer medication-wise, right, four levels of medication treatment, the best we can do is get 67% of people to remission. The other 33% are still depressed. That's really important. I tell my students all the time that if, you know, you could make just spend your life just treating people who are depressed. But what's real important to recognize are the relapse rates, right? So interestingly, you know, people who went to different levels before they got to remission, the relapse rates got higher and higher. So 40% of the people who got to remission in stage one relapsed. 57% who got to stage two relapsed. 65% in stage three and 70% in stage four. So if you were a person that took all four levels to get to remission, the chance that you would relapse would be 70% in the next year. So what that means is medications are very useful. They're not a miracle cure. And relapse is more common, you know, the longer it takes you to get to remission. So there's a lot of people out there who are getting treated with antidepressants, but they're not getting well. And so that's where therapy comes into the equation. It's good. That sounds a little more holistic to not just approach it from a medication-only perspective. But, and, of course, that study involved medication-only, correct? For the most part. With those okay. numbers, we're looking at what they did with the medication. They also offered therapy in a wing of this study, and the therapy helped. It wasn't as effective as therapies have been in other studies, and the main reason for that is people came into the study with the expectation that they were getting a medication treatment. So when they were offered, oh, therapy, they weren't as excited about that. And research has shown that, that, you know, people who come into a study expecting to get therapy or expecting to get medication, if they get something different, they never do as well. So what I'm hearing you say is that medications are good, but they have some short-term <laughs> success that they don't necessarily last in the long term because of the relapse rates and like, things like that. You exactly. Were and in fact, that's one of the major advantages of the different therapy interventions that we have is that when people do, you know, cognitive therapy or interpersonal therapy, especially, or versions of those, they essentially get just as many people to remission, but they have much lower relapse rates. The relapse rates for people who are treated to remission with cognitive therapy and interpersonal therapy and also behavioral therapy, which is behavior activation, you know, their relapse rates are typically less than 
Now, you make me think all of these percentages we're quoting are based on some type of testing, which says, you know, this works, this doesn't work, which gets into the whole topic of assessment. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what are some of the best ways to assess depression? Well, you know, in diagnosis of depression, making sure you get the, the diagnosis correct, okay? And then the assessment is more about looking at what are the underlying maintenance factors, and we'll talk more about what those are in a little bit, but you want to know more than just like what are the symptoms of depression they have, but what are these treatment target domains that you want to focus in on? Because you want to kind of get an idea of what factors led up to this and then what factors are involved in maintaining the depression. It's very important to realize that what triggers a depression is not the same thing as what maintains it. Sometimes they're connected to each other, but we don't always have to know what the trigger is in order to effectively treat it. The maintenance factors of things like depression, which we'll talk about in a little bit, are very important because we want to really target those with very specific evidence-based interventions. And that's where the tailor-making of treatment comes from. But just as far as the diagnosis, we We'll use instruments like the PHQ-9, which is the patient health questionnaire. It's a standardized instrument. You can get it pretty easily. It's actually in the DSM-5 that has its own set of measures, and the PHQ-9 is one of them. So looking at that as a screening instrument, and then things like the Beck Depression Scale, and these things can be used to kind of track a person's progress in therapy. But a really good interview or a standardized interview is useful. But what I tend to find is that in the diagnosis where people tend to make the biggest mistake is that they focus on like the physical symptoms of depression or the cognitive symptoms of depression. And if they see those, then they sort of immediately think, well, the person is depressed. You know, just because people may have changes in their energy and their sleep and their appetite doesn't necessarily mean they're depressed. You want to make sure that you really assess those emotional symptoms, right? That there's sad mood where people feel sad or down or depressed every day, nearly a whole day over the course of at least two weeks. Usually this is for at least a month or a loss of pleasure or interest, right? Where they don't really feel like doing anything. They don't want to do anything. Nothing really interests them anymore. They don't get any pleasure or get anything out of it. Those are the two core symptoms of depression. You need one or the other. Often you get both, but you got to have those first and foremost. If you don't have those and you don't have depression, then you would look at the different physical symptoms and the different cognitive symptoms. So making sure that you actually have depression, but then your assessment needs to focus in on some of these, what we call target domains, right? The maintenance factors. And there's eight of them that have a very strong basis in like all the research on depression. These eight factors are involved in maintaining depression. And they're more prominent in some people than they are for others. So for example, one of these eight domains is the loss of energy, motivation, and pleasure. Some people come to depression and instead of feeling sad and down and worthless and guilty. Instead, they just don't feel like doing anything. They're not motivated. They don't feel like they have the energy or motivation or desire to do anything. Now, that's a really important treatment target 
and it doesn't respond to actually cognitive therapy very well. So if you try to use cognitive therapy for that symptom domain, it tends to not work very well. Whereas cognitive therapy for like sad mood or guilt or, you know, sort of these self-attacks, that tends to work better. So one of your targets would be how much is the person withdrawing from the things they used to enjoy? You can ask a person, if you were doing better, how would you know? They may go, well, I would feel like doing things again. And then assessing, well, what kind of things would you get back to doing that you used to do if you weren't depressed? And this helps you identify, well, what were the things they actually did previously? And the kind of treatment that we would use for that is behavior activation treatment. Behavior activation is itself a specific module of treatment that's extremely helpful for getting people reactivated which then really starts to turn the depression around very quickly. In fact, behavior activation in itself can sometimes be all you need for getting people out of depression. When you stop doing the things that you value, one of the things that we teach people about behavior activation is that when you get stressed, right, you have different stressful life events that happen. And when you have those kind of stressors, it can zap your energy, motivation, and pleasure so you stop doing the things that you value or that are important to you and help people see that the brain rewards you when you engage in behaviors that you value, right? That's the connection between values and biology, if you will. So the more you don't do, the less you want to do. And the less you want to do, the less you do, and, and then you get into this vicious cycle. So that's one of the most important domains that we want to assess. And then some of the other domains would be their sad mood. And connected to sad mood would be, is it sad mood because of grief? Because, you know, they've lost somebody? Or is it sad mood because they feel hopeless? Or is it sad mood because they are extremely perfectionistic? There's some kind of failure or they haven't lived up to some kind of standard so those are the main target domains, loss of energy and motivation, sad mood, unresolved grief, self-esteem attacks, right, where people really go after themselves when they get depressed. Perfectionism or what we call contingent self-worth, which is like, you know, you have these internal standards that you hold yourself to that are so high that you can never really meet them and, and use that to beat yourself up. Hopelessness. Um, which is, you know, no, nothing I do will make things better, and so people stop trying. Very importantly, rumination and worry, and there's a whole set of strategies we use to help people change that. And then finally, in an interesting way, almost always relevant would be interpersonal conflict, so how to deal with difficult people. So a lot of depressed folks have what they perceive as difficult people in their lives and they feel really helpless in their ability to deal with it. So sometimes you got to work on that target. Some of those assessment methods you mentioned at the beginning, like the PAQH9 or the Beck Depression Inventory or the standardized interview, would you get to some of these eight domains, these maintenance factors? Well, those two don't. So we get into some of the depression treatment scales, and I'll tell you what some of these are. In our practice, we have a depression assessment protocol. So it's just for people who have depression, you know, we want to do a deeper, more complete assessment. One 
is what's called the response style scale, right? The response style scale is for assessing rumination. Another scale is called the why worry scale, right? So this is tapping into, you know, the reasons people worry and how much they worry. To measure the anhedonia or the loss of pleasure and interest, we use the environmental rewards observation scale. It's just a seven-item measure, but it's standardized. And then as far as loneliness, which is related to the interpersonal side of the equation, we use the multidimensional scale of perceived social support. And very interestingly, we also include the dysfunctional attitude scale, which really taps more into the perfectionism that people maintain about themselves and others. And we use the experiences and close relationship scale. That's an attachment measure. Now, the reason that's really relevant is that what we found in the research is that the type of attachment style you have, especially if it's more of an insecure style, becomes a vulnerability for depression if you get the right kind of stressful life event. So for example, people who are more avoidant in their attachment, right, they don't really like intimacy very much. They kind of rely on themselves and their achievements and their success, not so much worried about abandonment or being rejected. So people with avoidant attachment, the kind of triggers that tend to lead to depression for them have to do with some kind of failure where they come up short in some area. Some of the things that they really care about, they've lost. Right? Those are the big triggers, whereas people with preoccupied attachment are more prone to get depressed based on relationship conflicts or rejection more than it is about failure. So using that can be very helpful as you know, making sense of you know, which treatments tend to work better for that group. So interestingly, people with avoidant attachment do better with behavior activation and cognitive restructuring than they do with interpersonal therapies. You're really getting into the essence of what we're here to talk about today, about tailor-making depression treatments, because it sounds like from everything you're saying that you use these different scales to assess people, and then you realize what their maintenance factors are and things like that, and then you direct your treatment approach based on that assessment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. In all of that, it comes down to we want to assess these maintenance factors to see which ones are relevant in maintaining the depression. Then, based on that, we're going to use targeted treatment modules to go after those. You know, a lot of the research today on empirically supported treatments, what you see is this sort of sequenced package of treatment modules that are, you know, set in a specific sequence. And so if you learn that treatment or you get certified in that treatment package, right, then what you're doing is delivering step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, right, and, you know, all the way up to step 12. Now, what they have found is that there's dozens of different empirically supported treatments for different disorders. There's dozens for depression. But really, when you break them all down, they basically include these different modules. So like cognitive behavioral therapy has both cognitive therapy strategies for dealing with sad mood and self-attacks and you know, negative thinking about yourself. But they also include behavior activation that are embedded in it. So getting people doing activity scheduling and graded task assignments, sort of get them back into their life. So... Instead of learning just one 
empirically supported treatment and then trying to apply that to every version of depression you see, where things are going today is where you learn the core modules that are common across all these treatments. And the modules really boil down to about a dozen to a dozen and a half many treatment packages that are designed to target these maintenance factors. You can apply them not just to depression, but you can apply them to other disorders as they're relevant. When you identify these maintenance factors, then you're going to use that module of treatment to target that. So if the person is in this avoidance mode and they're not doing things because they don't feel motivated, they don't feel like doing things, then you're going to use a specific module to target that. Makes perfect sense. Let me ask you this, you know, and the listeners, I mean, some of them are real seasoned people and some of them are students, maybe at an internship Mm -hmm. phase. And of course, any one of us who's been in treatment work knows that resistance is sometimes an issue that we run into. How common do you say is resistance and depression treatment and what are some of the ways that you deal with it effectively? Well, I would say resistance is a part of really every treatment experience. And so you have to be able to build that into pretty much all your treatments. So motivational interviewing is one of the ways that we address this. You know, David Burns is probably, in my mind, probably one of the best people at really breaking resistance down and developing strategies for overcoming it. And we could do, you know, a whole series of podcasts just on dealing with resistance. But he talks about two types of resistance, process resistance and outcome resistance. And so process resistance is where people are just very reluctant to do the things that they need to be able to do to get better. So, for example, if you're going to respond to any therapy for depression, you're going to have to do things like homework. You can't just come to therapy and talk and feel better. I mean, I wish that you could, but you just can't. If you have an adjustment disorder with depressed mood, yes, you can go to therapy and sort of talk and get things off your chest. You'll feel better. But to overcome a real depression, you're going to actually have to, like, monitor your mood, complete a mood log or a daily mood log or you know, you're going to have to be willing to try some new behaviors or restart behaviors and see if they make you feel better. And if they do, great. If they don't, write down what happened. Same thing for anxiety disorders, right? I mean, to get over anxiety, you have to actually be willing to feel somewhat more anxious to get there. And so we have to recognize that people are very reluctant to engage in the processes that they need. There's a set of strategies used to deal with that. And part of it is not trying to resist the resistance, but actually going with it. You know, sometimes it's built into, you know, it sounds like you really want to get better. And let me ask you this. We really have some very powerful ways to help you break out of this depression. But one of the hard things is, I tell them, is it's not very easy to do that. It actually requires 10 to 20 minutes of kind of homework each day. And I don't know if that would be something you'd be willing to do, (laughs) right? They got to convince me that it's something that they're willing to do. If as a therapist, you find yourself trying to talk that person into doing this stuff, right? They'll actually resist it more, right? So there's a whole set of strategies about how to approach this with people. But if as a therapist, you start trying to chase them 
down with like, I can help you with this. You just got to be willing to do it. Then they naturally resist it. If you're saying, I definitely can help you kind of dangling the carrot, if you will. And we have some really amazing strategies that are super effective, but the short side is that they kind of require some activity that people may not be up to doing. And there are a few people who will say, gosh, you mean I'd be willing to do that once I start feeling better cart before the horse. They want to feel better before they start changing things. And it's actually the other way. You got to start changing your behavior and some other things before you start feeling better. Yeah. It sounds like you have to get them to really own their own treatment process rather than you be the one pushing everything. So exactly. Now outcome resistance is a little trickier, but it means that if they were to overcome their depression there may be things that they would have to then do or experience that they're not willing to do. So, for example, you know, one lady that I treated had really, really bad depression. She was an accountant, and she just loved being, besides doing accounting, she just liked to help people. And what ended up happening over time is people really took advantage of this. But anyway, she got really severely depressed and you know, took probably six or eight months of really hard therapy before she started feeling better. And then, you know, she was finally out of the house. She, in addition to her depression, she also had agoraphobia and she wouldn't go out of her house. And so eventually she got out of the house and she went to Walmart. And, you know, Walmart is probably one of the most stressful things for people with agoraphobia because everything that you're afraid of is there at Walmart, they, they seem to think. So she's standing in line at Walmart. And this lady comes up to her and she says, hey, I'll just give her a false name. Hey, Sally, I haven't seen you for so long. It's been like three years. How you doing? And the patient says, well, you know, I've been, I've been sick and I'm just starting to get back into things. And this lady says, well, you know, we haven't done our taxes for like three years. And man, I'm glad I ran into you. Do you mind if I just drop by your house today and drop that stuff off? We really need to get our taxes done. <laughs> Yeah, and then she started to relapse. I was trying to figure out why is she relapsing? And then, you know, we came to the story and it highlighted one of the important outcome resistance factors. See, for her to get well, she's going to have to learn how to say no to people. And the problem with saying no is that people could be disappointed. And for her to deal with that feeling of disappointing other people seemed completely overwhelming, something that she just couldn't come to. She would rather be depressed and in her house and not talk to anybody than to go out of her house and have to tell people no and see the disappointment on their face. So there's a set of strategies that we use for increasing people's tolerance for disappointment, right? There's actually empirically supported treatments for that uh, or modules, but that would be an outcome resistance factor. Another one can be with hopelessness, right? So helping people overcome depression, hopelessness is one of those factors. But outcome resistance looks at what are all the good reasons for being hopeless and actually talking about that. And there's like 50 good reasons to be hopeless. Like you don't get disappointed. If you get your hopes up and you expect good things to happen, if you don't expect good things to happen, and then you don't have to deal with being disappointed. And again, sometimes people would rather feel hopeless and depressed than they would to feel disappointed. Those kind of approaches that help us overcome resistance. And there's a set of strategies that you learn to make sure that you address resistance on the front side of treatment rather than 
you know, wondering why didn't this work or why did they drop out of therapy? Well, I'll tell you, Gary, I, I really appreciate you being on the program and because I know depression is the most common issue that people treat in therapy. So th- this is certainly relevant for all the listeners. And I tell you, uh, all you listeners out there, if you are really having uh, Dr. Sibsey pique your interest with all this, wouldn't you say, Gary, your best resource is probably that 12-hour video training you did with the American Association of Christian Counselors? Yeah, I would say that's the best one, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I did that training with Dr. Todd Vance, who's a, also a clinical psychologist. And, you know, we go into a lot of detail and use, you know, role plays and examples of, you know, how to do each of these steps, like how to do behavior activation and, and how to deal with the resistance and, uh, you know, how do you target rumination using things like mindfulness and acceptance commitment strategies. So we kind of get into the into the specifics of how to do each of these components, and it's a great resource. Plus, you can get some CEUs for it. Well, I, I guess the other option is people could try to get into the, your uh, your doctoral program in clinical psychology, but <laughs> I know yeah. not, not all the listeners can do that. But everything we heard today was certainly a great introduction. Well, oh, let me ask great. you this too, Gary. I try to always ask everyone at the end of a broadcast, is there anything else that you wanted to share today that I didn't get to or I didn't ask you about treating depression and so forth? It's really an exciting time in terms of like the kind of treatments that are out there. And then, you know, Trying to integrate these things also with our faith that, you know, all these different strategies that we use, you know, when you're treating people um, who um, take their faith very seriously, it's very important to also learn how to package these things and talk about them within a person's faith perspective. And all the ones that I know and all the ones that I've talked about are so easily adapted into Scripture and you don't really want to forget that piece because sometimes that's a form of resistance too that you run into if a person feels like you're not really taking their faith into account and they can sometimes resist what's happening. So always pay attention to that component. And in the kind of practice that I work in, it's not an explicitly Christian practice. It's a secular-based practice. But I still have people come to me all the time who tell me that their faith is really important and they want to make sure that we take that in consideration in what we do. So that's another piece. Anytime you read and learn about these different strategies, also look for ways to adapt them to people's faith and into Scripture. That's a definitely a good point because in order to be holistic, we have to bring in faith, and, and faith is certainly a protective factor uh, in regards to sure. depression because helps people cope with a lot of things. So yeah. anyway, thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate you being on the program today. And You're welcome. It's my pleasure. All righty. Well, thanks so much. And we'll talk to all of y'all next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com.